from The Advocate magazine in partnership with GLAAD. This is LGBTQ and A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and if I'm being completely honest, I have a bit of a hard time wrapping my brain around this story. Chastin Buttigieg met a guy on Hinge. They hit it off. It actually worked out. They got married, and then that guy ran for president. And not only that, but he objectively and historically killed it. It still shocks me. Pete Buttigieg was a top-tier presidential contender who won the Iowa caucus. He was an out gay man who was taken seriously in his run for president. And the person at his side, his husband Chastin, he met on a dating app. I personally will be taking those apps a lot more seriously in the future, I will tell you that. And yes, Chastin is here today to talk about the historic Buttigieg presidential campaign, as well as criticism they faced, the toll it took on his mental health, and writing about it all in his first book. It's out now, a memoir called I Have Something to Tell You, so let's hear it. Without further ado, this is Chastin. You know, for all of the press you did during the Democratic primary, and for everything that was written about you, it wasn't until reading your book that I realized how unique your position also was as an out gay man in a relationship with someone running for president that has never happened before in our history. Was that something that you thought a lot about or talked about with the team? I thought about it endlessly. Um, I obviously encouraged him to run and, you know, gave him all this support and, and said, go for it. But that's because I had no idea what running for president was like. And so it's very easy to say like, yeah, I love you. You'd be a great president. And then, you know, the campaign took off rapidly. And then my profile rose pretty rapidly. And for a few months, as, as you read in the book, I had, there was a lot of anxiety about, you know, how do I fill this role? This role has never been done before. There's no playbook. I was anxious for a long time about making sure I got the moment right and making sure that I was doing it, you know, whatever quote the right way was. And Ultimately, I just decided I have to be myself. I, I can't do this pretending to be anybody else or, you know, expecting people to think I'm anything else but myself. And that worked really well. And it was also disappointing to some other people. But at the end of the day, I just wanted, you know, if people liked me, I wanted them to like me for me. And if, you know, if it wasn't enough, then at least it, I wasn't going out there pretending to be something else every day. Are you able to explain why it was different being a gay man, married to a gay man in the middle of a presidential campaign compared to like any other spouse? Well, there was, uh, sometimes it was like sitting in the middle of the blender and just kind of like watching the world like swirl around you and you're getting all this input and feedback and everyone has an opinion about like what you should do, what you should wear, what you should say. And then sometimes with really invasive things, like how you should perform your identity, your sexuality, things you should talk about or shouldn't talk about. And it was weird to watch, you know, one side of the aisle you know, we were far too gay for people like Rush Limbaugh, right? Of course. And then, you know, other people saying like they are, he is or he is not performing a way that is, you know, what I would like to see. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm thinking like, I am just being myself. But I, I don't think I would have been as successful had I been, you know, trying to pretend to be this mashup of, you know, Michelle Obama and Chrissy Teigen. You know, something I was wondering during the campaign was, you know, a fun joke that people had was calling you like the future first lady. Did hearing things like that, like hurt or offend you? 
No. <laughs> I mean, I felt like a lot of it was just in jest and, and I felt like people were celebrating it. They knew that it would be historical and they, and they knew it was something to be celebrated. I never really took offense to, you know, anything like that. Was there like a piece of criticism that was the hardest to hear? Some of the criticisms that sort of made my head spin, you know, when, when we talk about like what is enough and what isn't enough, and I was spending so much time on the trail and I wish, I wish more media would have covered what I was doing on the trail because I spent most of my time with teachers, students, LGBTQ centers and homeless service providers. Those, they all have very personal connections to me and my story. And so almost every day I was in some sort of LGBTQ center or, um, and having roundtables with young people. And I would hear these stories that were so reflective of mine, you know, young kids who had ran away from home, who felt they didn't belong, who were bullied in school, who were pushed out of their churches, who didn't feel like there was space for them and who are literally questioning their worth and their dignity. And then I see these criticisms of myself, my marriage, this campaign saying we're straight men. I think one person quipped that, you know, we're just two straight men without women. These insinuations that like queerness must look a certain way. And I'm thinking like, why are we policing the boundaries and making young people believe that queerness has to be performed a certain way, has to look a certain way, as if you have to exist a certain way to belong in our community when many queer people are sitting for example, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or in the desert in California, wondering if they even deserve to exist at all. And, you know, I, at the end of the day, like, I'm a, I'm a big boy, I can read that criticism and think about it and, you know, examine it through a critical lens. But then I thought that was really dangerous to, to young people. It is a funny thing because, you know, talking to so many queer people, everyone's like digesting messages of like how to be gay, how to be trans, how to be all these things. And a common theme I've like heard over and over again is like they didn't feel like the right kind of gay. And then suddenly we have you in the national spotlight and we're like throwing that same criticism that hurts so much on you as well. Yeah, it's funny because like <laughs> I was um, I was at an event once and this woman asked me, does being gay even matter? I mean, you keep talking about it. Like you talk about running away from home and you talk about, you know, marriage equality and, and, and the fight for trans rights. Like, does any of that really matter? I think it was one of the only times I had to like look at my team like, oh my God, you know, like hold me back. This is, it was so insulting. And I said, you know, until people stop killing us, it does matter. And with all of my privilege, I get to blend in, you know, on a, on a day, if I want to blend, I throw on a baseball cap and my jeans and a t-shirt and I, I call it my straight armor, right? I can put my straight armor on and, and blend in, but I'm still white. Imagine what it's like to be a black trans woman in this country. I mean, until people stop killing members of our community simply for existing, yes, it does matter. Those are the things I always thought about when people were, you know, thrusting their criticisms on me for how I did behave. You know, I was definitely gay enough and worthy of criticism enough for people on the far right who tried to smear us for simply existing, not anything we said or did just because we literally existed. One of the most foundational, I think, moments when I was coming out is when I learned about Matthew Shepard. And I grew up in northern Michigan, and I was so terrified that someone was going to beat me up and, you know, tie me to a fence post. That, that, that literally seems like a feasible thing that some, like, country hick in northern Michigan was going to do if they found out that I was gay. And then to think about, like, how many ways I tried to shape and push myself into like the most heteronormative presenting person just to survive. And then I became who I am and I went on the campaign trail and then 
from the left and the right, the death threats of people who wanted us to be dead just simply for existing. And then people in our own community who said, you know, you are not enough. You are not worthy of acceptance. In, in, the, in a community that I thought was supposed to be a beacon of acceptance um, and love for so long, I won't lie. Sometimes that was really difficult. And in the book, you write about different periods of darkness and suicidal thoughts. How did being on a presidential campaign affect your mental health? Oh, sure. I mean, obviously, when you're in like the feedback loop, that can be that can be hard. Thank God that I was surrounded by, you know, friends would join me on the trail. And I had learned to open up to my friends. And I had to be really honest about my feelings with friends. And I remember calling one of my friends who's actually a psych nurse saying, like, I need you to join me on the trail. Like, I think I'm getting a little overwhelmed. And, you know, he's also just wonderful and joyful to be around. And I wanted to be around my friends. But I had to really open up to my friends and my team and say, like, I know that I can be really bad at taking care of myself. And I literally had to have people remind me to drink water and eat food and then, like, allow myself to cry. And, and thank God you were able to say that and ask for help. Absolutely. I I think we're so so often told, like, being anxious or being depressed makes us weak. And I felt like in that role, I had to be like this extremely strong, empathetic, compassionate person. I would like to think that I'm still empathetic and compassionate, but like sometimes I can't be that strong. I can't be strong for 18 hours a day. That makes total sense. Okay, switching gears. Tell me this. When I interviewed Pete last year during the primary, I asked him a question about you and he did not know the answer. I want to ask you now. Are you nervous? I mean, always. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. Let's continue. I asked him, how long into dating you did he tell you that he might want to run for president one day? Do you remember that? No, it seems like a really gradual... It wasn't like... Because I remember on our first day, I was like, what's next? Like, what are you doing? Where are you going in five years? I am tired of shitty dates. I am not going to keep putting myself out there to get my heart broken. I like put it all out there. Like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to grad school. I'm going to finish grad school. I'm going to be a teacher. I want a family. You know, I'm like very family driven. And I remember him being like, that's a lot. I'm like, well, take it or leave it. Right. Like, this is who I am. And I'm not going to lie about who I am. And I remember asking him, you know, what's next for him. And his answer, I think, was truthful and honest, was just like, you don't run for office to run for another office. Like, if you screw up as mayor, like, there's nothing left for you. So you have to do a good job. And then Shortly after we got married, people were starting to, you know, push him to have this conversation. And it seemed silly at first and it slowly started to to add up. I remember, I think it was like in August and he was like, do you really think we should consider this? And it was like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like, it sounds, sounds great. Like, I have no idea what that's like. And then, you know, like, it was like you start building a plane and then all of a sudden, like the plane just took off, but it wasn't finished. And then you're like building a plane like as it's taking off and it just happened. That makes sense. It was a more gradual process where it wasn't like he was like, hey, Chasten, are you cool? I'm going to get on stage right now and announce. It just was a <laughs> slow thing. No, it was like, should we entertain these conversations? Should we listen to people who are asking us to consider this? And it, and it, it wasn't like, let's go. I mean, it also takes a lot to run for president. So we had like four volunteers and no money. Like we started having a lot of those initial conversations like at our dining room table. You know, it was this like scrappy little thing. So to run for president requires a level of ego. And I don't mean that in a rude way. It's just like factually, it is a requirement. Even knowing him so well, did that level of ambition surprise you? Like, did you know it was there? I mean, I think he's always been like an ambitious person, but I never thought it was like, I'm going to run for president of the United States after being mayor of South Bend, Indiana. The thing that I was actually really fearful of was 
I was never really a political person. And from what I experienced, it seems like politics can really shape people for the worst. And it was like, I don't want to see you become someone you're not. And I, I don't want to become someone I'm not. And I was really fearful that, you know, those things that you see in like movies and television shows, like sometimes they actually happen. Like people sit you down and they're like, you're going to wear this and you're going to say this and you're going to go do that. And we were like, no, we're not doing that. Like I refuse. Everyone had inputs on like how to be and what to say and what to do. And like Pete and I were both like very much, well, he did take my advice on clothes, but like beyond that is like, don't tell me how to talk. I talk the way I talk. And that's going to be that. Are you saying that in the way that we self-police ourselves as gay people? I mean, sometimes for protection, for a good reason, to like, you know, how queer or not we're presenting, that was like also being talked to you. I knew that no one would have the guts to say, like, control your lisp. Watch your walk. Don't be swishy. And I, very early on, when Pete and I were meeting sort of with our kitchen cabinet, you know, our, our, our main folks around us, I was just like, look, I'm going to be who I am. And no one's ever going to tell me. By the way, like, I at that point did not have, like, the confidence I do now, like, after the campaign. So it was just like, um, can I say something? It's just like, I talk the way I talk and I walk the way I walk and I am who I am. And I'm not going to have someone, like, workshop me like that scene with Sandra Bullock and Miss Congeniality where they, like, spit her out of an airline hangar, you know? And now she's, like, a beauty queen. Like, no one's doing that with me. It will crush me if I have to pretend to be somebody else. And that was one of my biggest fears for Pete was, like... This is historical and it's a first and I don't want anyone to, of course, we're going to get the feedback, the pushback, the blowback. So let's just be ourselves. Do you actually think you have a lisp? Depends on how many drinks I've had. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I guess. uh, But I also, you know, probably I'm probably policing myself talking to you right now and I don't even notice it because for so long we've been programmed to watch ourselves. And I was probably, you know, not even cognizant to the fact that I was doing it when I was like sitting down for interviews with people. Like I've had, I just listened to today. I heard the first excerpt of my, my audio book that's coming out. And it was like, that's what my voice sounds like on, on audio book. And I bet like sometimes unknowingly, I, you know, we, we switch ourselves, we police ourselves just to try to blend in a little bit more. Last question about the campaign, but how did being a part of a presidential campaign change your relationship to America and how you feel about it? I think sometimes we can be so pessimistic about America, especially if like you're only getting your information from Twitter. And I was, you know, I'll call myself out. Sometimes I would get like so wrapped up in the feedback loop and be following like the criticisms of the campaign and thinking about like how I am adding to that or subtracting from that and just watching like the state of our country in play. But then I would like get out of the car and I'd walk into an LGBTQ center and there'd be like 30 kids in there so pumped to talk to somebody. And, you know, they're like someone from a presidential campaign's here. And then someone would say like, this is Chaston, his husband's running for president. And, you know, some kids were just like absolutely floored that we were there. I remember going to a, a children's theater in, in Orlando, Florida. And they were like, why are you here? And I was like, well, because I love theater and theater saved my life. And I want to make sure if, you know, I become first gentleman that we have a really strong arts initiative in our country because I think arts save lives. And and I would just have these amazing roundtables with teachers and kids and and people running these LGBTQ centers in small towns and big cities who are literally saving lives. And it would just remind me how good people can be and how great our country truly is. But you just have to go look for it sometimes, you know? You don't open Twitter and it's like, look at this beautiful thing that's happening. You know, it, it's it's all like fire and doom and gloom and, you know, cancel culture and 
be a really dark place. And then I would go to these events and, and people would just remind me of like why we're doing what we're doing. I really appreciate that the book pushes back against the myth that once you come out, everything's magically better. And I think that's so important because even though we know that that is a myth, like I think secretly a lot of us still hope it is true. Like it gets better. Really? Because the people who are talking about gay people in my school and my church are making it sound like we're an abomination, like doomed to a life of damnation and hellfire. So I don't see how it's going to get better, you know, and I kept growing up and people would say it gets better. It gets better. And like, then then why this? Right. You'd like point, you know, points to gestures to everything over there. Right. And and I felt like when I was out on the trail that young people also were looking at me like, don't come in here and bullshit me and say, like, it's going to get better because you're going to be in the White House. And that's why I was there, right? It's not like you can just elect a gay president and first gentleman. Like, it gets better. Tell me how I can help you make it better. What do you need me to know? And I want to make sure that's why I did all that work, because I wanted to, make, wanted to make sure, like, day one, I had a, a better understanding about who I was serving and what I was doing there. You know, and while you were 18, you were living at home, attending community college, and not in the most queer-friendly place. And you wrote that you were certain that your parents would disown you when you came out. And yet you did come out? Can you just talk about, like, what was going through your mind that, like, despite all that, you still wanted to? I think it's so interesting how we all have very different stories. And, you know, especially Peter and I, we talk about this a lot. It felt like it was eating me alive. It felt like if I didn't say it out loud, it would kill me. And I just felt like if I didn't, if I didn't spit it out, if I didn't say it, if I wasn't honest about who I truly was, then I didn't see anything. I just saw an ending. I just had to. Then, you know, with Peter and other people that I met on the trail, like they pushed it so far away and repressed it so that they could do other things all while being an inauthentic version of themselves. And I felt like I just had to be what was like cooking inside of me. It just had to come out. And I did. And so, and I was so certain, I just like ran. I was like, like shit, everyone's going to know and it'll be over. So like I'm, I'm out, but like, at least I said it, at least it's over and I can run. And, and that's so interesting because your, your parents did not kick you out, but you still left after coming out to them. I didn't give them time to kick me out. And I don't think they would have. They just didn't know. Like everything that I had heard and learned just told me like I was going to be an embarrassment and I had to get out of there. I think it's also because I loved my parents so much that they gave me so much. They fought so hard to give us, you know, everything that we needed. And I saw, you know, my dad's work ethic and and just how loving and giving my parents were. And I thought like, I can't ruin all of the hopes and dreams that they had for me by staying here. So I'll go. Oh, I've never heard someone phrase it like that before. It's to save them the embarrassment of having this gay son. I had all these images of like, what would happen if they had to tell other people, you know, what would happen to their friend groups and people at church and people my dad did business with, like would people not want to give business to the guy who had a gay son. There were all of these nightmares floating around in my head. And it was like, let me just spare you. And so I, I got out. And, and I wanted to 
ask you about this because I think the subtext of my question is like, why did you not just move away and like live out and not have them know? And I wanted you to explain because I think it's like so powerful that like as a queer person, you, you do need to put words to these things. You do need to like be seen by your family despite all cost. It gives me so much joy when I see kids like have coming out parties, like their family celebrates them and their friends celebrate them and not everybody gets that, you know? And in a way, like, it was just gloomy. I came out and that night I slept on my friend's couch. And it wasn't like, you're out. Let's have a drink. It was like, you're out. Um, what are you going to do? And so I enrolled at the community college and I don't know what I was doing. I honestly don't. I, I think yeah. I, it was just like I had this drive to keep going, even though it felt pointless. And you did finish college eventually after some time. You got a bachelor's and then you got a master's in teaching. Do you think that you can ever teach in a classroom again now that your profile is so big? I think so. I mean, I taught while I was the mayor's husband and that, you know, was fine. I feel like if you build like the the right rapport with your students, like they know where the line is. Um, And I would love to be in the classroom again. I, it's just where I feel alive. It's, it's where I feel like I'm in the right place. And that's why I love doing what I was doing out on the campaign trail, even though I was sad to leave the classroom. I just felt like it's where I was supposed to be. And that's why I just told the team, like, I'm going to spend time with teachers and spend time with kids and spend time at LGBTQ centers and, and theater organizations because that's like, that's my jam. And that's what I know. That makes me feel good at the end of the day. So teaching's not off the table. No, no, I would, I would love to keep teaching. I just want to make sure like whatever I do, contributes in like similar ways that teaching did, right? That makes me feel like at the end of the day, I was doing the right thing, whether it's the arts community, you know, something benefiting children. It's just, that's where I feel the most alive. Were you out as a teacher? Oh yeah. Well, not in Chicago because I was substitute teaching. And then I guess I had a boyfriend for a period of that time, which wasn't really anything that like came up. I think mostly like those kids are like, do you have a wife? I'm like, no. And then like, that's the end of the conversation. (laughs) But then when I moved to South Bend and I was subbing, people started to figure out who I was. And so I didn't deny it. Even if you weren't, you know, talking about it every day in the classroom, it it would have changed my life to have an out gay teacher in middle school. You know, I, (laughs) there were days where I'd like have to say something and like go cry in the bathroom because a kid would say something really awful. And, you know, some kid would like throw a slur at you and I would get to like, I would get to have like a Meryl Streep Devil Wears Prada, like that cerulean moment with a kid about like why we don't say things like that and how destructive those things are, you know, and then like wrap up the class and like have a moment because I never had a teacher who did that. And like, but now I get to be the person I wish that I would have had. And like all of those kids watching get to see another teacher say like, yeah, no, we don't, we don't say that. We don't treat other kids that way. I wish I would have had a teacher like that. Me too. Now, going back to your marriage for a second, was the celebrity aspect something that you thought about as it pertained to your life? You know, you're falling in love with a man who is a mayor with big ambitions. Did you consciously think about whether or not you were okay with giving up anonymity for the rest of your life? No, I never, no, never thought about that. Never, it just because it wasn't a world I was used to. I didn't know I didn't know any better. Oh, because even had he asked you that, like, so directly, like, you probably wouldn't have known what you were consenting to in a way also, right? When he ran for president, it was like, I did not realize that I was giving up that for the rest of my life. 
you know, I ran downtown to pick up a, a marriage license today. Uh, I just needed a copy of our marriage license. And it was like, somebody spots me on the sidewalk. That's a conversation. The guy, the, you know, the security guard at the door stops me. That's a conversation. The clerk obviously knows who we are. That's a conversation. Like I go to get coffee on my way home. That's a conversation. It's for the most part joyful, but it's like, can I go and get the mail and the paper in my gym shorts? I'm always like mortified when I do. And then someone's always in front of the house like, oh, hey there. (laughs) You said that you were picking up a copy of your marriage license. Is that part of the paperwork you need because you're adopting a baby? Oh, I would love if that was the case, but um, it's for health insurance. (laughs) A less sexy reason. (laughs) Okay, last question. How did being a part of such a historic campaign and having your own star rise, how did that change what you want and how you envision your life? I don't know. I, I felt like my goals were so not small because they're all big things, but like what I wanted was to be a teacher and I wanted to be a really good teacher and I wanted a family and I wanted dogs and, you know, I wanted to be close to my family because I I love my family and, and that would have made me happy. You know, all the, all the goals I had for myself, like I want to travel the world. I want to do it next to somebody who loves me for me. And, and that's good. I really like one of my biggest goals in life is just to be a really good dad. That's what really excited me. And obviously life has changed dramatically. I still re- want to be a really good dad. And I still want to be a good teacher. And, and and I think I can still do all of those things and have all of those things. It's just, you know, I married somebody who changed things a little bit. And I think for the better. <laughs> I think that's a great place to leave it at. Thank you for this. Hey, you, this was really lovely. Thank you. And that was, of course, Chastin Buttigieg talking about his brand new book, I Have Something to Tell You. It is out now. And last year during the primary, I also got to talk to Pete Buttigieg, who, as he pointed out, would have been the first millennial president. I'm not so sure that marinating in Washington for, for a long time is, is the best thing to prepare you for um, national executive office in these times. And I don't know that we've seen enough voices from our generation stepping forward onto a national stage at a moment when our generation is the one that has the most at stake. I mean, the longer you're planning to be here, by definition, the more you have to gain or lose by the decisions that are being made. It's why I'm always talking about the world as it might look in 2054, which, God willing, is the year that I get to the current age of the current president. And uh, when that is a personal question, What's the world going to look like? Not the theoretical thing, but like, what am I going to do then? Then I think it just gives you a sense of urgency. And so I think the Democratic voice, the Democratic Party needs a voice that's that kind of millennial Midwestern mayoral voice that nobody else can bring. Pete Buttigieg would have become the first millennial to become president. And who knows, maybe he will. He is just 38 years old. To listen to the full interview with Pete, you can find it in the pod feed or, of course, on the website at advocate.com. We are also brought to you in partnership with Glad. You can find out more about them at glad.org. And as always, if you enjoyed the interview, please make sure that you are subscribed and help us spread the word on social media. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. The show is on Twitter at LGBTQPod. Come find us and connect. We love hearing from you every week. And beyond that, it is also just an amazing way to help our show grow. So thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who's doing that. We'll be back next week with Taylor Parks. 
She is an amazing singer-songwriter in her own right, and perhaps best known as one of the songwriters for Ariana Grande's Thank You Next. So that's coming up on Tuesday. You do not want to miss it. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I will see you next week. Bye.